worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also so excited to be growing the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardionerds. We are establishing the Cardionerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardionerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. Today, we are honored to be joined by cardiology fellows from VCU, Drs. Ajay Pillay, Anna Tomdio, and Amr Doshi. Guys, welcome to the show. Would you please introduce yourselves? Hi, Ahmed. Hi, Cardio Nerds. My name is Anna Tomdio. I'm a second-year fellow here at VCU in Richmond, Virginia. I completed my residency at East Carolina University in North Carolina, Go Pirates, and aspiring to be an interventionalist. Hey guys, thanks for putting this together. My name is Amr Doshi. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow and coachy fellow, along with my colleague here, Ajay Pillay. I am from North Carolina. I did my residency at the University of Cincinnati before coming to VCU for cardiology fellowship, and I'm currently applying for heart failure fellowships. Hey guys, super excited to be here. My name is Ajay Pillay. I am part two of the dynamic duo and lucky enough to be the other chief fellow here at VCU. I did my residency and chief residency at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. AUG, the start code on. Woo woo. Sorry, guys. I had to do it. <laughs> Dad jokes are our specialty here. <laughs> I'm going into the incredible field of EP next year. Ajay, Anna, Amar, this is an incredible pleasure to meet you. We have been already having such a great chat pre recording, and I'm just ecstatic to hear about an amazing case. But I've got Google Maps open, and I'm about to jump into my computer screen. Take me to Richmond, Virginia, your favorite locale, and set up a nice setting and scenery for this great, amazing chat. So Richmond is a great place, lots of great outdoor locations and food. So I'm just going to walk you through my ideal day, and I think we can pick a spot along the way, if that sounds okay. So typically, wake up to a nice, cool morning run on one of our parks. Then we like to go have a grand breakfast at one of our fine brunch eateries, Lulu's, for a great cast iron skillet brunch. Maybe head over to our brewery district where we enjoy some local beers for a few hours. And then finally, burning off some of those with a nice bike ride along the James River. Then eating some great Thai food at our local Thai restaurants. And then finally, if we have space, and we always have space, eating a giant slice of cake at Shindig's. (laughs) What a fabulous day you guys have planned for us. 
It's Sunday morning at eight o'clock in the morning, and I can't imagine a better thing to do than to have a Richmond-style brunch, and we can save the brewery for this evening. I like it. <laughs> All right, I've got my skillet. Let's go ahead and dive into some cardiology. What do you guys have for us? Let's do this. So I'm on the consult service, and I get called by the emergency department for a patient who passed out. So we go down to the ER, and we see this guy, and he's 65 years old, and he tells us that I was just sitting, having a beer with my friends, and then I suddenly passed out from a sitting position. So from the EMS records, they said that he had some pinpoint pupils, his oxygen level was only at 89%. So they were worried about some drug overdose. They gave him some Narcan, but it's really, really unclear if his mental status changed after that. So in the ED at this point, his oxygen level was much better. He did not feel any palpitations, did not have any chest pain, no dizziness, he didn't get short of breath, no tunnel vision, absolutely nothing. He did not have any loss of bowel or bladder control either. So he tells us that he's had similar events in the past, but was just told that he had seizures. So that's just what he attributed it to. But also something that we need to note is that he doesn't regularly see the doctor. Let's just take a pause to frame his presentation at this point. So I'm thinking about your patient and I'm thinking, okay, is this patient coming in with syncope or is he coming in with another cause of loss of consciousness? Syncope, of course, is a cause of loss of consciousness when you've got transient cerebral hypoperfusion, but other causes of loss of consciousness may include something like a drug overdose, which uh, is a consideration for your patient. But if we just think about syncope in general, we discussed this in prior episodes, but you know we break it down into four different big boxes, and this will help us sort of uh, pick out important and relevant things in the past medical history, as well as the data that we gather. But important considerations include arrhythmias, so it could be bradyarrhythmia or a tachyarrhythmia. The other big box that's cardiac is mechanical problems, which could be myocardial, like HCM, severe heart failure, valvular, pericardial, or vascular, like a PE or a dissection or pulmonary hypertension. The third big box we think about is reflex syncope or the neurocardiogenic syncope, which can be situational or carotid sinus hypersensitivity and or vasovagal. And the fourth and last big box for syncope is orthostatic or postural hypotension, which can be exacerbated by certain medications, dehydration, and or underlying autonomic dysfunction. So we're thinking about all of these possible diagnoses if indeed this patient's syncope is transient loss of consciousness from cerebral hypoperfusion. And we're going to be looking for features from the medical history and data to think where we're going to classify our patient. But the one thing that raises a red flag for us is that he was fine until he wasn't without a prodrome. And so that really raises a red flag for thinking about cardiac causes of syncope, which can certainly be ominous for future events. Yeah. And I'm a, that's so good that you jumped in here and teased out syncope versus altered mental status. We have to give a shout out to our first responders who just see these people and let's say, at the scene, they arrive and he's got no medical history. They don't know anything about him. He's basically just found down and they can go with the little information that they have. And in this case, it was looking at pinpoint pupils and administering Narcan because what else could you do? And then he wakes up and basically clarifies this idea that he was sitting, drinking beer in a sudden position and then without a prodrome passes out. It totally starts unraveling a totally different case for us. We're just so lucky that we get this history a lot of times. And so, you know, just a shout out to, again, to our first responders who really are acting immediately with really, really minimal history. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for their amazing breakdown. And, and you're absolutely right. The first responders, they're on the scene and able to give us some crucial information because obviously we're not there right at that point. Thanks for breaking it down really nicely for us. So going through his medical history a little bit more. So he told us he has this history of seizure disorder and then alcohol abuse and tobacco dependence. 
He's never had any surgeries. He had this lump removed from his right thigh about 10 years ago. It's really unclear what that lump was. When it comes to his family, he denies any family history whatsoever. No cardiac disease, no sudden cardiac deaths, nothing at all. He lives with his brother. He smokes about half a pack a day of cigarettes and smokes marijuana once a week and drinks two to three 40 ounces bottles of liquor per day. Not currently on any medications and he's not allergic to any medications. So going into his physical exam, his blood pressure was 154 over 112. Heart rate was at 99. He was breathing at about 16. He was satting well at this point with no fevers. And orthostatics were checked before we got there, before he got some fluids, and those were negative. So just looking at this gentleman, he's a slim guy, well-developed, appears to state at age, looked completely atraumatic. Looking at his neck, there was no JVD. Cardiovascularly, he had a normal rate, regular rhythm, no extra heart sounds, no murmurs, no rubs, no gallops. And there's specifically no murmurs on his upper right chest wall or on his upper left chest wall. When we asked him to elevate his arms, he did not get dizzy. The only thing that we really noted was that he had a laterally spaced apical impulse. Otherwise, the rest of his exam was very benign. When it comes to his lungs, his abdomen, his extremities, and his full neuro exam was completely within normal limits. This is a great physical exam. And one of the things about syncope that I find particularly exciting is that by nature, the patients are usually back to their baseline when you see them. And so, you know, your physical exam is actually not to assess the patient as they're in syncope, but it's actually to look for clues for an underlying condition that would lead up to the syncope. And that's the same for the ECG, as we'll get to later, obviously. You're really looking at the ECG for clues of an underlying cause of the syncope itself, whether it's some sort of brugada pattern or arrhythmia or evidence of WPW. You're basically being a detective because you weren't at the crime scene. Highlighting the pertinent negatives in a physical exam is actually critical. And then noting that lateral displacement already lets us know that there is potentially some sort of structural cardiac abnormality that we should be aware of and focus in on, especially when we interrogate the heart through the ECG and then potentially an echo. Yeah, Dan, I think that's so inherently true. There are a couple other things that I really like to focus on. One thing that I would emphasize for everyone, I always talk about this with my house staff on rounds, is that syncope is a very specific term and it's important to define it precisely. Syncope presents as an abrupt, transient, complete loss of consciousness. And it should be associated with an inability to maintain your postural tone, and you should generally have rapid and spontaneous recovery. Again, like Amit said earlier, that's related to hyperperfusion insult to the brain. So if that's not necessarily the case, you would start to change your differential and perhaps move more towards other causes of loss of consciousness, like seizure or head trauma or pseudosyncope. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Ajay. The term syncope is used a lot, and it's just important to really try and define it, just like Ahmed mentioned earlier. And the, I think the easiest way for me, or what I found to help me differentiate what may be causing syncope is breaking it down into two separate categories that go into cardiac versus non-cardiac causes. And Ahmed has touched on it a little bit earlier today, but just to reemphasize, when we're looking into the non-cardiovascular causes of syncope, we think about our reflex syncope orthostatic hypotension, which our patients didn't have, volume depletion and acute blood loss, we need to remember that there are other conditions that are incorrectly diagnosed as syncope, and these include intoxication, vertebrobasal or TIAs, hypoxia, and hypoglycemia. And none of these really seem to apply to our patient. Yes, he was drinking, but it's unusual for someone to be in a sitting position and then suddenly pass out and say that this is just all due to intoxication. 
Anna and Ajay, these were awesome points. And what I'm taking away is that syncope is a very specific clinical syndrome related to transient cerebral hypoperfusion, not to be confused with other mimickers that can appear similarly, but have a very different and distinct differential diagnosis. The clinical challenge here begins with how we frame the patient on the get-go. And in doing so properly, we get on the right track. I feel like I'm on the right track with you guys right now. Thanks. So going into the cardiac causes of syncope, there are big things that we want to exclude first. Obstructive cardiomyopathy, vascular steel syndrome, atrial myxoma, any sort of pericardial disease, and arrhythmias. And if we go into arrhythmias just a little bit more, these include a structural promise which may increase the risk of rhythm disturbances. And not to take your love for ECGs away from you, Ajay, electrical causes can include rapid SVTs, ventricular arrhythmias, as well as bradyarrhythmias, just like Ahmed mentioned earlier. And under all of that, we want to make sure that we're not worried about any kind of channelopathies. So these are like long QT syndrome, Brugada, CPVT, and drug-induced QT prolongation. So looking at all of this and trying to put all of this together, this is a gentleman who says that he's had seizures in the past. And it makes me wonder, like, was this like something that was just thrown on him because nothing was really found? And here we are with someone who's having recurrent syncopal events labeled as seizures because of his history of alcohol abuse. And Anna, I think that's a great point that we don't want to get biased with these anchoring biases of someone's past history of seizures, or we'll hear they were drinking or using recreational drugs. We never want to just toss out patient diagnoses based on some of these social factors. The other thing I'll highlight is that there are a few features in general that increase your likelihood of having a cardiac cause of syncope. So particularly for this case, some things stand out. The features that increase that likelihood are being older, usually over the age of 60, if you're a male, and having known ischemic structural congenital heart disease, a previous arrhythmia, or having a reduced EF. A brief prodrome, such as what our patient had, or actually no prodrome at all, increases your level of suspicion, as does syncope during exertion or while you're supine. As this applies to our patient, he's a male above the age of 60. He has no significant cardiac history, but his syncope did occur with no apparent prodrome. So I'm starting to worry that there may be a bit more than meets the eye here. I'm just so excited. You guys brought up this idea of going back to the medical history and overlaying it on this new information. Since this is our first syncopal event, we now go back and we look at his past medical history with another eye. And I think that's just so critical. We had said that he had a seizure disorder, and now that we're reassessing all of that and the appropriateness. And yes, when you have syncope and somebody who has quote-unquote seizure disorder, you got to really think that over. One antidote that highlights this is I was a second-year fellow in the ICU, and a patient started coding. We get to the bedside, and we're the first there. It's me and a resident, and the resident, who's just an amazing person and an amazing clinician, looks at the patient and calls for Ativan because he sees this patient physically looking like they're seizing. But maybe I got lucky, but I looked at the monitor and I saw that the patient was in VF. And so I basically was like, no, <laughs> epi. <laughs> it's epi. <laughs> it's going to be a few minutes. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, the, the monitor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the screen of truth. Anyways, yeah. So we reassessed that patient very successfully. And it found out, obviously, that he had tersades after looking back at the monitor. I love that idea. That can be very confusing. Sometimes codes, even in the hospital, can present as a seizure lookalike, but really actually be an arrest which is on the spectrum of syncope. You know, syncopes were reversed spontaneously and arrests are not. So just a great point of being a good medicine doctor as well. And then also the seizure with syncope. 
It's an awesome anecdote. I think a big part of cardiology fellowship is being trained to be cross-eyed and assess the patient and the telemonitor at the same time. <laughs> I'm going to add an anecdote where a resident came in and saved the day. I came on service one time and the patient had been there for probably, I don't know, two months without very little family and social support. So it was sort of a difficult overall situation. But the patient originally was admitted for syncope and it was attributed to sort of a benign cause of syncope. They thought it was vasovagal. There was no red hearing at the time. And so the team switched over and we have the saying, trust but verify. And so the resident did a great overall thorough workup and noticed on exam that there was a murmur and looked back at the patient's history. And the patient had this history of having had an LADMI back like 20 years ago with some sort of like PTCA balloon angioplasty without even a stent and wasn't clinically having cardiovascular symptoms and so it wasn't really noticed. And on the basis of that, the resident ordered an echocardiogram, the murmur and the history of LADMI. And the patient had two features, one, a huge apical scar. And two, undiagnosed hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with a thick septum. And with a combination of apical scar and apical ballooning and a hyperdynamic base with HCM, the patient also had an obstructive gradient. So it completely changed our framing of this patient and our consensus of why this patient was having episodes of syncope. Really highlights how important it is to look at history as well whenever you're dealing with these patients. The initial presentation often does not give you the right diagnosis. Yeah. I remember we, uh, I think as a first year fellow, I got a call from the Murky one time and they said, this guy had a VT arrest, but yeah, long history of seizures. You know, it was just long QT. We put her on some appropriate meds and put an ICD in her. And as far as I know, for the past year, she hasn't had any events. So it's just very interesting to see all these cases. Yeah. I've had a very similar one in the ED. A young lady keeps coming back to the ED for seizures. And sure enough, she was having VT every time. And just the same thing. She got a device and that was it. All right, guys. So going back to our patient, his labs were not super impressive, to be quite honest. I mean, he did, he had a lactate of 12. That was concerning. But after some fluids, and went down to 9.8 and eventually down to 1.4. Initially had an anion gap, acidosis with a bicarb of 14. His creatinine was at 1.2 and glucose level of 222. He also has slightly elevated liver enzymes, AST and ALT with 173 and 85 respectively. And the other thing on CBC that was a little concerning was that he had platelet count of 114. Otherwise, it was pretty unremarkable. His INR was 1.2. His troponin was undetectable. He had a BNP of 924, TSH of 1.4. And his toxicology was negative except for a mildly elevated ethanol level. So not super concerning for alcohol intoxication to the point where he's going to just pass out. And as far as the imaging that we had so far, his chest x-ray was not impressive either. He just had an elevated right hemidiaphragm, but otherwise completely normal. So these are some pretty interesting abnormalities on his labs. He presents with a profound lactic acidosis, but he appears alert and non-toxic on your evaluation and recovered fairly quickly. In a male with no apparent medical history, we'd expect his renal function probably to be a little bit better than his presentation. While his AST and ALT may be representative of alcoholic liver injury, taken in conjunction with his other lab work, you have to start to wonder if this patient hasn't suffered some sort of recent hyperperfusion insult as well. Any other thoughts, guys? Yeah, I agree with you. When I think of liver enzyme abnormalities or elevations from ischemic hepatitis, I think of them being in the multiple like hundreds and thousands range. Here, the AST and ALT are both below the four 500 range, and the AST is more than two times the ALT making me think that this actually probably is alcoholic liver injury. His platelets are low at 114. So there may be some chronic portal hypertension, hypersplenism, if there's no other cause. The albumin is sort of normal. The INR is a little bit elevated. But overall, I'm wondering if there is some underlying alcoholic liver injury, and that may factor into how we contextualize lactate. The lactate is so high, and it comes down very quickly. 
it can be high, of course, because of not being metabolized well by the liver, but coming down so quickly makes you think that, okay, this was like a very quick single hit and got better. And so maybe this was a hypoperfusion, but also this really does bring tonic-clonic seizures back in the picture because this pattern could fit with that in the absence of another finding. And then lastly, the BNP is also elevated. And so far, we haven't heard anything about heart failure symptoms, either on exam or the chest x-ray. Yeah, that's right, Amit. And I was going to add to that beautiful synopsis of the labs, that lactate going down so quickly. I know that we're all cardio nerdy and we're all fixated on seizure presentations as a cardiac cause, but seizure can be a cause of this as well. And so definitely keeping that in mind too. Yeah. And one of the most impressive causes of lactate that I've come across is when my senior fellow, Dev Patel, who's a EP now, he was consulted on a patient with a lactate like 16 to 18 range with no signs of other organ injury or adverse hemodynamics. And it was his diagnosis as a second or third year cardiology fellow. It was thiamine deficiency in a patient with alcoholism. And alcoholism comes with a myriad of issues, metabolic issues, organ injury. There's certainly effects on the cardiovascular system like atrial fibrillation, atrial arrhythmias, cardiomyopathy. But there's also metabolic issues and poor oral intake and stuff like this. So like thiamine deficiency is something that can factor into cardiomyopathy and elevate lactate and will actually have a case of thiamine deficiency causing wet berry, berry heart failure later on in the series. And so there's such a richness in every case at every level that uh, is, is fun to enjoy medicine. What an amazing pearl. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for telling us about that. And definitely with what Dan and Ahmed have just said, it definitely adds a few other things to our differential diagnosis and maybe it puts back seizures back on our differential diagnosis. However, what if I told you guys that his EKG showed sinus tachycardia with a short PR and a delta wave that was concerning for an accessory pathway? Bum, bum, bum. Council on the way. <laughs> well, that was our thoughts exactly. You know, as Amit and Dan were saying, seizures definitely still on the differential, but it's starting to look like we have a potential culprit in our patient. These lab findings now, along with these EKG, I think we can rule out some of these causes of syncope that we were talking about, such as orthostasis, reflex syncope, PE, hypoglycemia. And with Anna's awesome physical exam skills, I think subclavian steel syndrome is something we can also rule out as well. So now with these EKG findings, something we're thinking about is this Wolf-Parkinson-White pattern. And with this history of syncope, he may fit this Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome that we all learn about in our cardiology textbooks. At this point, I may send it over to our budding electrophysiology fellow, see what he thinks about this. Oh man, this is so exciting. WPW is electrifying. So if you look at V1... this you say WPW is like- electrifying? That's awesome. I love that. I'm going to use that. I love that. Welcome to the Cardio Nerds family. (laughs) We have to go back. Dad jokes are a necessity here at VCU. (laughs) You know, uh, so far we're Luke. We've been enjoying this conversation so much. We're like, these guys cardio nerds. Are they not cardio nerds? But you guys are decidedly cardio nerds. Thanks for inducting us into the family, man. (laughs) Okay. This EKG is pretty interesting. I encourage everybody to go look at it. If you look at the Aruda mapping algorithm to try to figure out where this is, it probably maps down to the right posterior septum. WPW pattern is pretty rare. It occurs in less than 0.5% of the general population. And the pattern itself is much more common than true WPW syndrome. Just to give you a little bit of background about what a bypass tract is, a bypass tract is generally thought to be a remnant of atrioventricular connection caused by incomplete embryologic development of the annulus. Failure of that fiber separation between the atria and the ventricle or other structures within the heart results in these abnormal connections that we call bypass tracts. 
there are a bunch of different types. And sometimes I like to say these really fast if I need to wake up. So we can talk about atrioventricular bypass tracts, atrionodal, atriohiscient, atriofascicular, fasciculoventricular, nodofascicular. At some point, it feels like I'm speaking another language. But for our purposes, we'll focus on typical AV bypass tracts. In EP land, we can distinguish bypass tracts as being manifest based on whether or not we see evidence of pre-excitation on a surface 12 lead EKG. The EKG requirements for diagnosis of WPW are a PR interval less than 120 milliseconds, normal P wave vector to exclude a junctional rhythm, the presence of a delta wave, and a QRS duration greater than about 100 milliseconds. If we see evidence of manifest bypass tract in an asymptomatic patient, we're observing a WPW pattern. If this patient then goes on to have documented tachyarrhythmias or symptoms consistent with tachyarrhythmia, then voila, you have WPW syndrome. So guys, there are a ton of different arrhythmias that are observed in WPW syndrome. The most common of these arrhythmias is AVRT, or atrioventricular reciprocating tachycardia. AVRT can be orthodromic or antidromic, and a lot of my house staff struggle remembering what that means. So just recall that ortho is the Greek prefix for correct. So in orthodromic AVRT, the depolarization wavefront travels correctly down the native hysteprakinji system and then incorrectly up the bypass track. About 90% of AVRT and WPW is orthodromic. If you think about WPW and your general approach, you should realize that risk stratification in these patients is paramount, particularly in the asymptomatic patient. Rapidly conducting bypass tracks can conduct rapid atrial impulses directly to the ventricle. This is probably the most feared complication of WPW with AFib becoming VFib. This is particularly relevant in our cause of syncope, which may have represented what we call an aborted sudden cardiac death. So if you see manifest pre-excitation on an EKG in a totally asymptomatic patient, we typically consider an exercise stress test to see if that bypass tract still conducts at faster heart rates. Loss of pre-excitation during a stress test is consistent with block in that bypass tract and implies a long effective refractory period in the bypass tract. If you're interested in numbers, usually that means it's about greater than 300 milliseconds. Remember that only abrupt and complete loss of that pre-excitation qualifies as a surrogate for an EP study. And the likelihood of that actually happening on treadmill stress tests is actually pretty low. It only occurs about 10 to 20% of the time, and the sensitivity can be pretty poor. So if you do have persistence of pre-excitation, though, on that treadmill stress test, then your sensitivity is pretty high, and it can predict high-risk features during an EP study. There are some high-risk features on EP study that I'm interested in. So I'll just let you know that a pre-excited R-to-R interval in AFib less than 250 milliseconds is generally thought to be high risk. That's something known as Sperry, or the shortest pre-excited R-to-R interval. I think it's also the name of a brand of shoe I used to wear in high school. But anyway, bypass tract effective refractor period of less than 250 milliseconds also is high risk. By the way, I sent Ajay and Anna a picture of my Sperrys that I still wear, so, so not just in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I help moderate a WhatsApp chat where basically EMS and first responders send in the strips all the time to basically say, hey, what do you guys think of this? It's a Again, not for real-time opinions, but more to help them appreciate what they're seeing because they know what they're seeing is weird. And so we kind of kind of help them go through what it actually is because they usually just drop the patients off. And a lot of times, this is very common, that the patient's actually in the WPW SVT and people are basically saying, oh, I think there are like delta waves there, but really there are not delta waves there because they go away because you're actually using the accessory pathway to get back up into the atrium instead of going down. So you lose that pre-excitation. I think that's a fundamental point that we should definitely highlight for early learners, but even everybody. 
Yeah, that's a great point. It's really important to realize that depending on what resource you're reading, about 50% of bypass tracts are manifest, meaning that you'll see them on an EKG and 50% are concealed. So you may not see an accessory pathway on a baseline EKG, but you still can have orthodromic AVRT and WPW syndrome. Ajay, that whole explanation was next level. And really the only word that comes to mind is electrifying. (laughs) 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 So the manifestations of WPW are, as you said, one, the pattern. So on a baseline resting 12 lead asymptomatic EKG, if it's a non-concealed pathway, i.e. a conducts bidirectionally, you may have a shortened PR interval with a delta wave. And then the second manifestation is if a patient is having AV node-dependent AVRT, right, orthodromic or antidromic. And then like a third of these patients will also have atrial arrhythmia. So you may have AFib or A-flutter and variably conducting through a combination of both the AV node and or the accessory pathway. And in these patients, you'll have AFib with sort of this wobble from QRS to QRS because depending on what proportion of the conduction is happening via the accessory pathway, the QRS may be narrower or wider. And so I think, and Aja, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you probably want to avoid our usual approach to AFib rate control. You probably want to avoid giving nodal agents like metoprolol and calcium channel blockers and digoxin, because if you block the AV node and they preferentially go down the accessory pathway, which doesn't have the normal stops in terms of slowing conduction down, and the patient ends up going into AFib with one-to-one ventricular conduction, they can degenerate into VF and really cause a lot of problems. So in this situation, you want to think about slowing down ventricular myocardial conduction with things like ibutilide and procainamide. Yeah, that's exactly right. Ibutilide and procainamide definitely are preferred in this situation, and avoidance of AV nodal blocking agents is crucial to avoid an adverse outcome. To take it back to this patient, this patient is actually tachycardic with a heart rate of 120 beats per minute. But we recognize that even though they're tachycardic, this is actually not a WPW-driven tachycardia. What we're actually seeing is that it's actually sinus tachycardia, as we said earlier. And we are seeing the evidence of the WPW pattern that could have caused our patients' issues earlier on. So sometimes it's very challenging, especially when it's a concealed pathway or they're going slower. But here, you have a few clues. One is that they're not totally clinically stable. I assume that this ECG is not the one that was done after that lactate came down. It's probably the one that was done prior to some fluids and stuff. So you can see that this patient is still having a compensatory tachycardia that actually is not arrhythmia-driven. And that's different than an arrhythmia-driven non-compensatory tachycardia that he may have had earlier, which led to his whole presentation. So just uh, another thing to point out about this ECG. That was a great point, Dan. I'm glad you highlighted that. And then, so, Anna, I wonder where you're going to go from here, because you've got a patient who comes in with what sounds like syncope, probably with a red flag of not having had a prodrome, and a seizure history that can take us in different directions. And then we also found a WPW pattern, which normal healthy people without ever having arrhythmic manifestations may have. How do you know that this pattern is what causes syncope? How do you risk stratify patients with WPW? What did you do next to further interrogate this? Yeah, absolutely, Amit. So that was very concerning when we saw that because we're like, oh my gosh, is this why he's been having syncopal events? Is there something else going on? So we went on to get an echo and it gave us some very useful information. So going over the results, what we ended up finding was that he has this concentric left ventricular hypertrophy, normal left ventricular cavity size, and he preserved function. His diastolic function, however, was indeterminate. He did have an interventricular septum that measured at about 1.6 centimeters and a posterior wall thickness of about 1.3 centimeters. His RV was completely normal in size and function. His left atrium was mildly dilated. 
He had insignificant to mild aortic stenosis and really no other concerning valvular dysfunction. His left ventricular mass was indexed at about 133.6 grams per meter squared. There was no LVOT gradient at rest or on provocation. And his strain pattern was suggestive of apical sparing. So what do you guys think about that? So I think those are some very interesting echo findings, Anna. Looking through his echo a little bit closer, the patient's echo shows a thickened heart and increased myocardial mass, which indicates he has left ventricular hypertrophy. And I think at this point, it would be good to talk about some of the definitions to clarify what's going on and what we're going to talk about later on in this case to clear up some concepts that I've had a hard time defining, even in fellowship. To clarify, let's talk about what a normal left ventricle looks like. So a normal left ventricle has a wall thickness less than 1.1 centimeters. So when we see a thickened heart on the echo, we think of this hypertrophy, as we mentioned. Another way to define that hypertrophy is by having an LV mass index which is the LV mass that's calculated indexed to the body surface area to standardize it. So an LV mass index of greater than 115 grams per meter squared for men and greater than 95 grams per meter squared for women. And he had an LV mass index of 133.6, which is definitely above the 115 mark. This broad category of thick heart phenotypes can be driven by different pathophysiologies. Some of those include hypertrophy, infiltration, storage diseases, and mitochondrial diseases. And furthermore, under each of these subheadings, we have our causative diagnoses. For example, true hypertrophy, as defined by myocyte enlargement, can be due to multiple things, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or a reactive left ventricle. By that, we mean the ventricles reacting to hypertensive heart disease, aortic stenosis, subvalvular stenosis, and athlete's heart. And as mentioned, other causes include infiltrative disorders, including cardiac amyloid, storage disorders such as Fabry's disease, and then mitochondrial disorders, which may represent Miele's syndrome, coenzyme Q10 deficiencies, and Friedrich's ataxia, among others. Well, that's a very nice breakdown of definitions, Amar. And this is definitely things that we need to think about when we encounter patients who present just like our patient did, especially in the setting of left ventricle hypertrophy or thickened heart, so to speak, that we see on echo. So looking at our echo findings, is there something specific that jumps out at you? Does that help you narrow down our differential diagnosis a little bit more? Exactly. Thanks, Anna. So right off the bat, looking at this echo, I would again note a couple of things. As we mentioned, he has this increased calculated mass index of 133.6. And also notably, his interventricular septal thickness is measured at 1.6 centimeters, which is considered to be very thickened, as well as a posterior wall thickness of 1.3 centimeters. With his left ventricular end diastolic diameter measured at 4.5 centimeters, we're able to calculate what we call a relative wall thickness, which his proportions are greater than 0.42. So we would classify him as having concentric left ventricular hypertrophy. So with these measurements, we can start to prioritize some of the possible causes of LVH in this patient. Right now, I'm starting to think this patient may have either a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy-like phenotype, including amyloid. Anna and Amr, I love the way you approach this finding on the echocardiogram. And one, it's really increasing our concern for the underlying cause of syncope in this patient. And two, I love what you did is you, you took an abnormality and then you essentially spoke out your diagnostic schema in how you approach that differential diagnosis. And then you're outlining the next steps in parsing through that diagnosis. And in this situation, we've got pretty significant concentric hypertrophy. And the first question really, is it load dependent or is it load independent? And so the most common causes of hypertrophy are going to be load-dependent causes. As you mentioned, hypertension, aortic stenosis, subvalvular membranes, even athlete's heart is a load-dependent phenomenon. 
when we're thinking about load-independent manifestations, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a very common one in addition to other things like infiltration and storage and whatnot. I think one interesting feature here is the apical sparing. And it's been defined by Dermot Phelan and others where you look at the strain pattern. And it's typically used to differentiate hypertensive heart disease versus cardiac amyloidosis, which is a very common scenario to be in. And the decreased global longitudinal strain with apical sparing or this cherry on top appearance is more indicative of cardiac amyloid or a, a related problem. So I think in this situation, we think it's probably not going to be just run-of-the-mill hypertensive heart disease, although it is worth in these settings just practically looking back through the EMR and seeing what the pattern of hypertension has been in this patient. I remember, Anna, in your presentation, this patient was pretty hypertensive when they first got here. And so if the patient is living in a very hypertensive state, then you can certainly get hypertrophy like this. And then the other common differentiating problem from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is athlete's heart. It doesn't sound like he's an athlete at baseline, but when you start getting issues related to diastolic dysfunction and left atrial enlargement and a thickness that's getting to 1.6 and above centimeters, that's going to be less likely as well. So we're definitely thinking this is probably some pathologic primary cardiomyopathy beyond hypertrophy, uh, secondary to hypertension or other load. Exactly, Amit. And I do want to note, amyloid currently still remains high on our differential at this point, given the echo findings. And then some of our listeners may be wondering, why does hypertension or this increased load cause concentric LVH? I wanted to mention the law of Laplace. Wall tension equals pressure times the radius of the cavity divided by the thickness of the cavity. And the greater the wall tension, the greater the myocardial oxygen demand. And so as the pressure, such as the afterload that the heart has to work against, increases due to aortic stenosis or hypertension, the ways the heart tries to minimize this wall tension is to increase its thickness. So it hypertrophies in order to reduce this wall stress and reduce its oxygen demand. And so that's the mechanism why we get this hypertrophy in some of these afterloaded states. I love that, Amr. Thank you. These are like fantastic points. And I'll just add, when we're dealing with a structural abnormality, it takes arrhythmia to a whole new game in the management of arrhythmia. Even thinking about not our patient for a second, but rate control and atrial fibrillation. If you knew that your patient had severe AS, severe MS, or a severe pulmonary hypertension with RV problems, or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with a LVOT obstruction, or a really restrictive heart or constrictive heart, you would totally think of the patient incredibly differently and appreciate the nuances that the structural abnormality set up with serious hemodynamic consequences for rate control. And it could go one way or the other. Certain conditions do better with higher heart rates, and certain conditions do better with lower heart rates. And so as soon as there's a red flag for a structural abnormality, as picked up in this case by the physical exam with the lateral displacement, I was already like, wow, typically if you have a normal, healthy, you know, 18-year-old guy who basically has a syncopal episode and we find WPW on his post-syncope EKG, I'm thinking, wow, is this guy a high-risk guy who had atrial fibrillation and was just like beating, 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 beating down from the atria right into that accessory pathway, just overwhelming his left ventricle and putting him into an arrest? Is that this patient? But for somebody else who I'm already getting evidence of structural heart abnormalities, like either amyloid or potentially hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where there's a structural abnormality that either makes him feel poorly, I'm starting to think a little bit differently. Like maybe he doesn't need that atrial fibrillation or something crazy to set him into a syncopal event. And maybe that's why he's having these so frequently with drinking and potentially maybe when he's drinking, he's a little bit dehydrated. And if he ends up having hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, maybe that's really leading him to have higher LVOT gradients. And so with a tachycardia on top of that and poor filling, you would exacerbate that. 
So these are all the things that fly around my mind when I'm approached with a patient who has WPW, but in the setting of structural abnormalities, such as what we're teasing out here. So great discussion. And I'll add a couple of pearls as well. You know, when we're thinking about amyloid infiltration, typically you think about low voltages. 10% of patients can have high voltages. And in this particular setting, it's hard to interpret voltages when you also have a WPW pattern because that conduction down the accessory pathway can modify your QRSs independent of the LV mass and or infiltration. And the second pearl that I think makes amyloid and other restrictive cardiomyopathies a little bit lower on my differential is that the initial blood pressure when the patient came in was 254 over 131. And a pearl that I got just from Mazin Hanna, who's a cardiomyopathy attending here at the Cleveland Clinic, is that it's very unlikely that a clinically manifest patient with amyloid cardiomyopathy will develop blood pressures this high. It's just, it's not within their hemodynamic profile. When we think about cardiac amyloidosis, is it AL, is it ATTR? The asymmetric hypertrophy is more likely to occur with TTR cardiac amyloid, and this patient is older. And if it was African-American, had carpal tunnel syndrome, bicep tendon rupture, lumbar spinal stenosis, then those are all features that would raise my suspicion. But definitely we have enough to look for it, but there are things that make it less likely here. That is a great point, Amit. And those are things we were thinking of as we were working up this patient. One thing I want to pause and discuss is we're tossing out this term hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I think it's important for us to actually define what that is for our listeners. And that way we can move forward with a better understanding of it. So whereas hypertrophy is just excessive LV mass, it doesn't necessarily indicate the underlying pathology. As I said, one of it could be hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And so hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in and of itself is a genetic condition with hypertrophy. So like I said, increased myocyte size. And that can be due to a mutation in one of the cardiac sarcomere genes that are essential for the contractile motion of the heart. Currently, there are about 11 genes that have been identified and over 1,500 gene mutations potentially responsible, with the two most common being the cardiac beta-myosin heavy chain and the cardiac myosin binding protein C mutations. So I think it's very important that we define what hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is in that sense. So Amr, we know what hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is now. How do you diagnose it by echo or other multimodal cardiac imaging techniques? Okay, that is a great question, and that's often a tough one to answer. But the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy states that we have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy when we have a left ventricular hypertrophy greater than or equal to 15 millimeters, but also with the absence of another cardiovascular or systemic disease associated with LVH or myocardial wall thickening. Thus, as you said, we need to rule out some of these other causes of wall thickening. As a side note, in some cases, if you have a first-degree relative with known hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and an unexplained wall thickness of only 13 millimeters as opposed to 15 millimeters in any segment, then that's also diagnostic of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Since in this case, we don't have a first-degree relative, we need to rule out some of these other causes. This is where we have to put together the patient's history, physical exam, and importantly, we have to work together with our imaging colleagues to help us differentiate. ECHO and now cardiac MRI have become very useful non-invasive methods to help determine the cause of cardiomyopathy. Uh, Certain etiologies can have certain patterns that we can recognize on the ECHO and MRI. He had a pattern on the ECHO that we had talked about concerning for amyloid, this apical sparing pattern. So this is something I think we should probably assess a little bit further. Anna, can you tell us if you had any additional testing for amyloid? Yeah, absolutely. So we requested immunofixation electrophoresis, SPEP, UPEP, and a PYP scan, and it all came back pretty unremarkable. So at this point, we're like, you know, this guy has this nonspecific phenotype, and he has this unexplained syncope. So what we decided to do, like the cardio nerds call it, we took him to the tube of truth. <laughs> His CMR showed a hyperdynamic LV. 
with mild dyssynchronous movement of the septum concerning for LV hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. He had a maximum wall thickness of 1.7 centimeters in the inferior and inferior lateral walls. His myocardial nulling pattern was normal. His native T1 values were not elevated. There was no LVOT obstruction, and there was also delayed gadolinium enhancement in 25% of the myocardium, including LGE at the RV insertion sites. Guys, first of all, I just think the right sound effect for Donut of Truth is more of an echoey thing. Donut of Truth, 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 Truth. But <laughs> we can go with whatever we want. And I know we're going to discuss the MRI, but I got to plug our episodes. We did a fantastic series on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy way back at the beginning of CardioNerds. Episodes three, four, five, and six discuss like the diagnosis and management from stem to stern. Just a fantastic series. And also, if you didn't get enough, we then did right afterwards a series on cardiac amyloid. And those are episodes seven, eight, nine, and 10. So definitely check those out if you haven't heard them yet. And also CMR with Dr. Debbie Kwan in a later episode. Speaking of which, Anna, do you remember at all what the pattern of LGE was in the setting? It was more of a patchy mid-myocardial pattern. There was some RV insertion site enhancement, but more uh, of it was noted laterally out near the apex and infralaterally in the mid-wall. I appreciate that. The reason I ask is because in cardiac amyloidosis, the LGE typically is subendocardial, and in contrast to ischemic cardiomyopathy, it's diffuse rather than in a vascular pattern. And so this is just another bit of evidence that points us away from amyloidosis. And so I'll say that the hunt continues. Excellent point. Exactly. So... Like we mentioned with some of the MRI findings with the patient's negative PYP scan and the lack of abnormalities on the amyloid screening labs, I think at this point we can effectively rule out amyloid in this patient. His clinical history and presentation also do not suggest some lysosomal disorders such as Fabry's. He doesn't quite fit the age criteria. His, his, he, has, he lacks symptoms such as neuropathic pains, GI symptoms, and also common things being common. I'm thinking this is more of a hypertrophic subgroup. So as mentioned, the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy goes up on our list hypertensive heart disease. Athlete's heart's also on the differential, but like we mentioned, he's likely not an athlete. And we don't see evidence of aortic stenosis, so that's probably off the table as well. Based on his echo findings and his MRI findings, I'm more inclined to think of a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. OJ, why don't we discuss the typical MRI findings of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy a little bit further? Hashtag donut of truth, truth, truth. So... <laughs> this is going to be tough because I have to follow up these excellent cardi nerd segments from way back in the day. Just a disclaimer that I learned all of this from them. But as mentioned, MRI has become a great diagnostic tool in cardiology, and it can aid in the differential of ventricular hypertrophy. For hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, MRI in particular has been shown to be superior to echo in identifying segmental hypertrophy in areas that are not easily identified via echo. Its true strength is that it aids both in the diagnosis of hypertrophic CM as well as risk stratification of patients with hypertrophic CM. CMR aids us in visualizing parts of the ventricle that are not well seen on echo. This includes the LV apex, basal anterior wall, interlateral wall, and the inferior septum. While an asymmetric anteroceptal pattern of hypertrophy is the most common presentation, many patients have diffuse LV hypertrophy involving up to 50% of the myocardium. CMR also helps us assess RV hypertrophy, left ventricular outflow tract gradients, mitral valve leaflets, papillary muscle insertion, and other structures that may be difficult to assess with echo on certain patients. Sudden cardiac death in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can be driven by primary VT or VF, originating from unstable EP substrate. This typically correlates to an area of abnormally arranged myocytes with associated interstitial fibrosis or SCAR. 
This has been shown to correlate very well to areas of late gadolinium enhancement, and we can identify these areas of myocardial fibrosis in approximately 50% of hypertrophic CM patients. Delayed enhancement is most commonly seen in the ventricular septum, including at the RV insertion points and the free wall. The extent of LGE in hypertrophic CM has emerged as a strong predictor of future sudden cardiac death events, with LGE greater than 15% of the LV mass being associated with a twofold greater risk of sudden cardiac death compared to patients without LGE. Our patient with LGE of 25% of the LV myocardial mass thus is at higher risk for sudden cardiac death. MRI can be helpful in determining left ventricular hypertrophy caused by hypertrophic cardiomyopathy versus hypertensive heart disease. In general, maximal left ventricular wall thickness is greater in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy versus those who have hypertensive heart disease. Most patients with hypertensive heart disease have a maximal septal wall thickness less than 15 millimeters, though African-American patients at times, and particularly those with chronic kidney disease, can have wall thicknesses between 15 and 20 millimeters. While both hypertensive heart disease and HCM present with LGE in the mid-myocardium and epicardium, in HCM, it tends to be more in the areas of greatest wall thickness, and again at the RV insertion points. In our patient, with inferior and infralateral wall measurements of 1.7 centimeters, along with the degree and pattern of late gadolinium enhancement, we're starting to favor a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy phenotype-like diagnosis. Wow, Ajay, that was a great overview of the MRI. And I just want to focus on a couple of things here, because as we're all taught about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we hear these buzzwords such as asymmetric septal hypertrophy, LVOT obstruction, and systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. So I want to highlight it's important to note that these are not necessary to have. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy has many phenotypic variants, including apical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy without LVOT obstruction, and diffuse hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which often don't exhibit these classical findings. And then just as an FYI, I know echo boards are approaching for a lot of us. How do we evaluate for LVOT obstruction on the echo? We do this by placing a continuous wave Doppler in the LVOT. And we can see this classic peaking dagger-shaped profile with obstruction defined as a peak instantaneous gradient greater than 30 millimeters mercury. And just another side note, Prior to considering something like a myectomy or an alcohol septal ablation, we like to see typical resting gradients of usually greater than 50 millimeters of mercury. So as noted on the echo and the MRI, our patient did not have any significant gradients. And then also just speaking briefly about systolic anterior motion associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, these are often due to inherent changes in the mitral valve itself, such as elongation of the valve leaflets or due to hypertrophy and displacement of the papillary muscles placing them closer to the LVOT, so the anterior leaflet is more susceptible to the flow drag force and can cause LVOT obstruction. Subsequently, with SAM, because the anterior leaflet is in the LVOT, you can often see a posteriorly directed MR jet. Wow, thanks for that amazing breakdown and helping us differentiate between some of these overlapping syndromes, MR. Because sometimes we see these patients and then later on when we find certain things, we're like, how come we didn't hear a murmur or how come there was this murmur and X, Y, and Z? So this was a really nice way for us to talk about what you expect to see on physical exam because that'll help us narrow down our differential diagnosis and may give us an idea of what we will find on echocardiogram. So given the variety of findings in HCM and our patient's echo and MRI findings, the lack of LVOT obstruction, SAM, significant RV involvement, we have an explanation as to why our physical exam was not very impressive. 
if I'm hearing you correctly, depending on how thick the walls are and depending on the hemodynamic state, we can sometimes detect a double apical impulse due to atrial contraction against a very non-compliant LV. If he had RV involvement, we may have seen a prominent A wave on JVP, which is a result of the atrium contracting against a closed tricuspid valve. Our patient, however, had this laterally displaced apical impulse. Also, in HCM, systolic murmurs are diminished with increased preload, such as squatting, or increased afterload, such as hand gripping. On the other hand, intensity will increase with a decrease in preload or afterload, such as Valsalva and vasodilation, respectively. So these maneuvers can also be used in patients with LVO2 obstruction. The big difference is that they have a medium-pitched systolic ejection murmur at the lower left sternal border and the apex. And of course, the intensity greatly depends on the magnitude of the gradient. And one big thing that we need to be able to differentiate between LVOT obstruction murmur and the aortic stenosis murmur is auscultating the neck, because we know that with aortic stenosis, you have radiation of the murmur to the neck. Another thing that we need to pay attention to is our patient's ECG. Specifically, we need to look for localized or widespread repolarization changes, prominent Q waves in the inferior leads and lateral leads, left atrial or biatrial enlargement, left axis deviation, and diminished R waves in lateral precordial leads. Wow, guys, what an interesting case. And this is what I love about cardiology. We started off talking about a case of unexplained syncope and a patient having some beer with friends. And now we're talking about Wolf-Parkinson-White and hypertrophic cardiomyopathies. This is what I love. We can see so many things. Syncope, WPW, HCM. Guys, what's going on? There's so much to digest here. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is a quite an impressive case. And there's so much we could learn from this in EP, in HCM. And this is just in someone who was out drinking with his friends and then suddenly passed out, has happened several other times before, but was labeled as seizures. So let me just tell you what happened when EP ended up seeing him. So he was evaluated by EP colleagues and was taken for an EP study. He then had an accessory pathway ablation and subsequently got an ICD for primary prevention. You know, that does lead us to a very great discussion on primary prevention and secondary prevention ICD implantation. The decision to implant a primary prevention ICD is complex in any scenario, and doubly so in a case like ours. Patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are at an increased risk of sudden cardiac death, and risk stratification, like you said, Dan, is very critical. Primary prevention ICD implantation is typically thought to be reasonable in the setting of severe wall thickening greater than 30 millimeters, a family history of sudden cardiac death in a first-degree relative, or recent unexplained syncope. There are some modifying factors, including the presence of non-sustained VT on a 24-hour holter, abnormal blood pressure response to exercise, or, like you reviewed in your episodes earlier, a burnt-out LV with an EF less than 50%. Other risk factors can also be taken into consideration, and that includes marked late gadolinium enhancement on a cardiac MRI greater than 15%, which, of course, correlates very well to our current case. The presence of an apical aneurysm or certain genetic mutations that confer an elevated risk are also relevant. Of course, secondary prevention ICD for those who have survived sudden cardiac death or sustained VT is universally recommended. It's probably important to note that there's a difference between the European guidelines and the American guidelines in this regard, where in the SE guidelines, they do place an emphasis on SCD risk prediction models, one in particular known as HCM risk SCD. ICD implantation is recommended if the estimated five-year risk of sudden cardiac death is greater than or equal to 6%, with a life expectancy of greater than a year. 
followed by a detailed clinical assessment that takes into account the lifelong risk of complications, the impact of an implantable device on lifestyle, socioeconomic status, and psychological health. So in our patient, we had a very detailed discussion about the risks and benefits of an ICD and used a shared decision-making toolkit. And finally, we decided and the patient elected to pursue what we denoted as a primary prevention ICD. Yeah, thanks for that breakdown, Ajay, and helping us figure out when we need to put ICD or when is it indicated for patients such as ours to get an ICD. In addition to that, does the presence of WPW pattern in him with a hypertrophic phenotype, does that add to our differential at all? Is there anything else that we should be looking for? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. I think this is where things really start to come together. The variant presentation of our patient's hypertrophy with significant scar and cardiac MRI in association with this pre-excitation raises the suspicion of an inherited form of WPW. There are two metabolic myocardial storage diseases that demonstrate a clinical phenotype of LVH that mimics the disease expression of typical sarcomeric hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. These are namely PRKG2 cardiomyopathy and Dannon's disease. Dannon's disease is a malignant phenocopy of HCM with multi-system involvement caused by the LAMP2 mutation. It causes skeletal myopathy, hepatic involvement, mental retardation, and it can often be associated with pre-excitation. These individuals are usually treated via early heart transplantation. PRCAG2 cardiomyopathy, on the other hand, results in glycogen accumulation within cardiomyocytes. Affected individuals typically exhibit symmetric patterns of LVH. This disease is frequently associated with WPW and bundle branch blocks, and a subset of these patients are at an increased risk of progressive heart failure and sudden cardiac death. This is particularly relevant for our patient and needs to be investigated further. I was just going to say that was such a phenomenal breakdown, Ajay. And until I prepared for this episode, I hadn't really learned or thought too much about the confluence of this hypertrophic cardiomyopathy phenocopies and WPW pattern. And it just gives you an example of the power and importance of thinking about diagnostic schemas, reframing the patient with sort of a problem representation, and then putting everything together. Everything has a schema. What's the schema for WPW to begin with? You know, it could be an isolated primary issue with an accessory pathway developing in a way that may or may not be inherited. It could be related to Epstein anomaly. Now we learn that this could be related to storage diseases because the glycogen storage can decrease the threshold for conduction in these patients. It can be from congenital heart disease in certain patients, and obviously the history will help there. And, and Ajay, correct me if I'm wrong. In this context, when WPW pattern and or syndrome is associated with the glycogen storage diseases, it's not necessarily from a distinct accessory pathway, but rather maybe from just increased conduction across the AV rim. And so ablating these patients may or may not result in durable effect. Yeah, that's exactly right. Accumulation within cardiomyocytes alters conduction characteristics of these myocytes. So particularly at the AV annuli, this can result in a lack of separation between the atria and ventricle. So it's very difficult to ablate these patients normally. Luckily, in our case, his postreceptal pathway was easily identified and easily ablated. So it'll be interesting to see what we find as we move forward in further diagnostic workup like genetic testing. Phenomenal. Anna, I think this leads us into a bit of a discussion on genetic testing. Do you want to wrap things up and talk about that a little? Yeah, absolutely. You already introduced it by talking about Dannon's and PRKAG2. Now, something that we need to remember is that HCM is transmitted as a Mendelian trait in an autosomal dominant pattern. Now, prognosis is not based on genetic mutations. Therefore, it's really important that patient management is not based on genetic test results alone. On the other hand, it is really crucial for family surveillance and for more accurate diagnosis given the difference in management. So for example, a patient with Fabry's disease will require enzyme replacement, but someone with LAMP2 cardiomyopathy 
This often requires transplant very early in their lives. So it's really important to keep in mind that only about 50% of patients with HCM will test positive for a gene mutation. This does not mean that they don't have HCM or that it's not genetic, but that we couldn't identify the gene responsible in those patients. Also, we need to note that gene mutations don't lead to specific phenotypes. So because they have X mutation does not mean that they will have apical HCM or that they'll have septal HCM. Our patient was referred to our cardiac genetics clinic and underwent genetic testing, which is currently pending. So if this is positive, he will be referred to a genetic counselor and cascade screening will be considered based on what his results are. And also one thing to consider at this juncture might have been a cardiac biopsy. As of today, its use remains a little bit controversial, but as mentioned earlier, it's important to have some accurate diagnoses for the prognosis and treatment. Not all of HCM is diagnosed through non-invasive testing, and there was a great scientific statement put out by the AHA, ACC, and European Society of Cardiology in 2006, and again reiterated in 2014, that discussed the role of endomyocardial biopsy. And they suggested that a biopsy is not commonly indicated to evaluate for heart disease, However, in the setting of an unexplained cardiomyopathy, specifically for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, an endomyocardial biopsy is a class 2B recommendation with level C evidence. If all other testing has been done, such as TTEs, ECGs, cardiac MRIs, echoes, and genetic testing, then it's reasonable to pursue an endomyocardial biopsy. And just keep in mind that some of these biopsies are not going to be right ventricular biopsies, but also left ventricular biopsies as well. And so we always have to weigh the risks and the benefits of these procedures. But if done properly at a center with an experienced provider, the morbidity and mortality is generally less than 1% for these procedures. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Amar. Over the last 10 years, there has certainly been a greater understanding of pathophysiology and the natural course of HCM and HCM phenocopies. The advancement in science and medicine has been fascinating. Because we have moved from a disease with very poor prognosis to one with almost completely normal life expectancy. However, we still need to work on identifying and risk stratifying patients with HCM. And this includes appropriate ICD placement, management of patients who are genotype positive but phenotype negative, and of course, hoping for the development of targeted pharmacological options. Ajay, Anna, Amar. This has been an incredible discussion, and Amit and I are just so appreciative for opening your world to us and seeing not only this fascinating case with so many dimensions, but also the collegiality that you share between yourselves. The chemistry is just so indicative of such a warm learning and training environment, and it's really palpable over this episode. A lot of these cases end with this multi-D, massive, collaborative effort to take care of one patient. I mean, here we have EMS providers, ED, we got cardiologists like you guys figuring this out. We got EP, we have genetics, we have CMR readers. We just have this incredible diverse group of people coming together for taking care of this patient. And that was also reflective by us watching you guys discuss this incredible teaching opportunity of a case. That already gives us a lot of insights into VCU. And we'd love to hear more about what makes your heart flutter about training in cardiology in general, and then VCU specifically. So, I mean, to be frank, like what is there not to love about cardiology? It's all about pathophysiology. And a lot of the things that we see make sense. Specifically, what drew me to VCU is one, I'm a female and the women in the cardiology department at VCU are fantastic. This is one of the programs where I interviewed where they had a good number of women attendings. They had women in fellowships. So for me, it was very important to see that. 
And I wanted to go somewhere where I felt like I could relate to someone and someone could understand how I'm feeling when it comes to certain things and find a mentor that would push me forward or that would encourage me to pursue interventional, which was my goal from the beginning. So that's one of the big things. In addition to that, when I came, the camaraderie was fascinating. Like the fellows that stopped by in the interview room. And of course, when I um, ended up starting doing my fellowship here, it showed the same thing. I could easily walk down to EP if I had any questions. I could easily go to our heart failure department if I had questions or imaging. It was never a problem to find someone who could take the time and explain something to me. So with that, I'm very happy that I'm at VCU. I love the city. I love the hospital. And I don't think there's any other program I'd rather go to. And I just want to echo what Anna said. Great colleagues that we work with here. It's, it's very fascinating because we have world-renowned attendings that I can text at 2 a.m. When, when I'm on my night shift and without hesitancy, and they'll get right back to me. And so I think just being treated as a colleague by some of these attendings, it's just a great feeling. The other things I really liked is we're a really clinically strong program. And so coming in as a first-year fellow, we focus on getting you your skills needed to become a great cardiologist. We have a lot of time in the cath lab, the echo lab, the stress lab, and we slowly bring people along. And so by the time you're a second and third year, you have the skills necessary to essentially run the team yourself. And the attendings are just there in the background as needed. And so I think your clinical development is second to none here at VCU. And for me personally, going into cardiology, I like heart failure. And so seeing a patient coming in, not being able to walk or breathe and having them leave the hospital a few days later, like a whole new person, that's just an incredibly rewarding experience. Guys, there's so much I love about VCU. I mean, this fellowship is my baby. My co-fellows are my family. I think any major quaternary referral center, you're going to have a wide range of pathology. You're going to have incredible resources for your training, and you're going to have almost every significant cardiac subspecialty represented. But for me, when I interviewed, um, it really came down to the people. I mean, the people here are fantastic. The mentorship has been so powerful. And I think it's embodied in our program director, Dr. Kalahasti, who, despite being an electrophysiologist, really focuses on the fact that regardless of where you are coming from, regardless of what your career goals are, he just really wants to make sure that you're a phenomenally trained, well-rounded cardiologist first, and then move on to everything else afterwards. And he's been a phenomenal mentor to me, as has everyone else. I can't imagine another institution where someone as well known as Dr. Kenneth Ellenbogen would be open or willing to text me at midnight about a publication that I'm submitting the next day. So just really happy here. Really love the people. And it's been a phenomenal experience. So I welcome you to come and check us out. Wow. Amr, Ajay, Anna. I mean, to say that this was a joy is an understatement. And I tell you how I feel right now, but what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to read uh, text messages that Dan was sending me on WhatsApp while we were talking. I think this really highlights this relationship in the program. There is underlying tones in this episode that show a real family network structure in their program, without even mentioning how great VCU is or how unique they are because of this, or that they're demonstrating that this is such a lovely place to work and learn. I'm getting emotional about this group. So that was from Dan like five minutes ago. You guys selected a case that highlights many of the things that we love about cardiology. It highlights many of the major disciplines within cardiology. You use the case to teach us really in so many different levels. It took us to the next level. It was purely electrifying. And I just have to say, this was such a pleasure. Welcome to the Cardi Nerds family. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, guys. It's been a true joy. Thank you guys for those kind words. 
So now for our ECPR segment, we're going to bring on Dr. K.R. Shaw, who is one of my personal mentors and is the division chief of our advanced heart failure program here at BCU. Amar, thank you for such a flattering introduction. I'd like to thank the cardio nerds for inviting us to be on this wonderful podcast. And I'll be honest with you, after listening to this segment, I am at awe and somewhat intimidated by the intellect of these fellows. In this portion of the podcast, I'm going to share my approach to adult patients that have thick heart cardiomyopathies that are from load-independent causes. So we're not talking about patients who have aortic stenosis or hypertension or volume or exercise-related wall thickening. I'm really focused on the evaluation after these have been ruled out. I'm going to talk less about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and amyloidosis since these have been covered thoroughly in this podcast and several others. I'm going to focus this discussion on two glycogen storage diseases, including PRKAG2 mutations and Dannon's disease caused by a LAMP2 mutation, and one lysosomal storage disease, which is Fabrase, related to an alpha-galactosidase deficiency. Understanding there are several other conditions in these categories, which I'm not going to cover, I've chosen to focus on the ones that affect adults and often may be underdiagnosed when evaluating an adult with a non-load-dependent thick heart cardiomyopathy. So let's start with a PRKAG2 mutation, which has an autosomal dominant pattern of inheritance. The mutation affects a protein involved in ATP synthesis. In cardiomyocytes, the enzyme affected is involved in glucose and fatty acid regulation and storage, along with utilization. Carriers of this mutation have a near 100% penetrance of disease and usually are diagnosed in adolescence or early adulthood. The average age of diagnosis is around 30 years. Patients present with all sorts of arrhythmias that can be atrial, ventricular, high-grade conduction disease, present a syncope, or even sudden cardiac death. From a cardiomyopathy standpoint, as in the case we discussed today, patients also have concentric, diffuse ventricular hypertrophy and classically present, as Ajay described in the podcast, with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome or pre-excitation. In addition to these cardiac findings, often patients have either myalgias or some degree of muscle wasting associated with this mutation. While there are no disease-specific therapies, diagnosis of this helps identify patients at high risk progressing to pacemaker-dependent conduction disease or requiring an ICD. Later-stage disease is often treated with orthotopic heart transplantation. Similar to the PRKAG2 mutation, a mutation in the LAMP2 gene causes another glycogen storage disease called Dannon's disease that also results in a phenotype of severe left ventricular hypertrophy associated with conduction disease and pre-excitation syndromes. However, Dana's disease is X-linked and presents with a very severe phenotype in males. Patients are usually diagnosed in their teens and have very aggressive progression of their cardiomyopathy. Most don't survive past the age of 25 without heart transplantation. Young men usually have the triad of cardiac involvement associated with cognitive delays and poor performance, for example, in school, and also muscle weakness or wasting. The muscle wasting and weakness is not as severe, say, as a familial amyloidosis syndrome. However, it's associated with elevated CPKs on their blood work and generalized weakness compared to normal children. 
In addition to the above, they often have associated ocular findings, including hypopigmentation and retinal revision issues. Women can also present with severe disease depending on the degree of X inactivation they have of their other gene. However, most of the time women present with less severe forms and sometimes even a dilated cardiomyopathy. The average age of diagnosis is usually in their mid-20s. And the prognosis is much better with less aggressive disease. Fabry's disease is a lysosomal storage disease. It's also X-linked, arising from a mutation in the galactosidase A gene that is responsible for creating the alpha-galactosidase A protein, which primarily cleaves parts of glycolipids. The result of this mutation is accumulation of GB3 in cells, leading to the multiple potential symptomatic presentations. Similar to Danin's disease, Fabry's being X-linked presents earlier and more severely with more classic symptoms in males. Patients develop concentric hypertrophy and associated conduction abnormalities and arrhythmias. Features of classic Fabry's often talked about textbooks and presenting in young males include acroparesthesia or severe nerve pain that tends to occur to episodes, renal failure including proteinuria, or hematuria, and hot and cold weather intolerance, along with hypohydrosis, or the lack of sweating. Patients are at a higher proclivity for cerebrovascular accidents, and many present with ocular findings, including corneal opacities and cataracts. Women can present with severe symptoms similar to men, depending on the degree of X inactivation. However, many have minimal symptoms and present later in life with disease manifestations. In clinical practice, it's rare to see patients with Fabry's have the entire spectrum of symptomatology. Often patients or in families with clusters of Fabry's seem to have a potpourri of symptoms. There are also variants of the disease reported to have an isolated cardiac presentation and isolated renal presentations without manifestation of some of the classic features I described above. Patients diagnosed with Fabry's and cardiac involvement should be monitored for conduction disease and also aortic root dilation in addition to evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy and heart failure. Enzyme replacement therapy is available and should be initiated under the guidance of a Fabry's expert. Data from small studies are promising, but confirmatory comparative data are not available. I'd like to thank everyone for their time and listening to this podcast. And to summarize some of my key points regarding non-load dependent LVH that's unrelated to classic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or amyloid disease, I urge you all to consider these glycogen storage diseases and lysosomal storage diseases that are phenocopies of thick heart cardiomyopathies. Thank you very much. I'd love to introduce Dr. Gautam Kalahasti, our program director for the General Cardiology Fellowship and a personal mentor of mine, to say a few words to prospective applicants to VCU Health. Hi, my name is Gautam Kalahasti, and I am the Cardiology Fellowship Director at Virginia Commonwealth University. First of all, I would like to say thank you to CardioNerds program and to the ACC FIT section for the opportunity to say a few words about our Cardiovascular Diseases Fellowship. I want to begin with saying job well done to Ajay Pillai, Ana Tamdio, and Amar Doshi. These are just three examples of outstanding fellows that we have here at VCU and of whom we are all very, very proud. The Cardiology Fellowship at VCU produces the most well-prepared cardiologists imaginable, 
At the core of our fellowship is our mission to prepare and train the next generation of cardiologists, whether it be for academic practice, a hybrid practice such as that of a clinician educator, or a private practice. Within that mission, the most important element is to mentor the fellow based on his or her individual career goals. Whatever your goal is, we're here to support you. This is accomplished in several ways at VCU. One, we have outstanding clinical and procedural volume distributed over two quaternary core care referral centers, the VCU Medical Center and the McGuire Veterans Administration Hospital. We have a very well-organized rotational curriculum, which provides exposure to a very diverse range of patient populations. There's simply nothing you won't see here or be prepared to do. Your workload, although challenging like any other good cardiology fellowship, is very balanced. All of our fellows are able to achieve COCATS Level 2 training in all major disciplines of cardiology. We offer subspecialty fellowships in interventional cardiology, advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology, and invasive electrophysiology. Second, are the didactic and conference schedules. We've put a lot of effort into organizing a truly comprehensive series of didactic lectures, taught almost exclusively by our attendings, to assure your academic knowledge will match your outstanding clinical abilities. At the National ACC Fit Jeopardy competition, our fellows placed second in 2018 and first place in 2019. Our fellows really know their stuff. Third, academic activity. Whether you're interested in a basic sciences research project translational research or clinical research, or even a quality improvement project, you'll have opportunities in all of these areas based on your interest. Our fellows are extremely well accomplished in research with protected time distributed over the course of three years. VCU is very well represented in regional, national, and international conferences. Finally, mentorship. Our faculty is committed to the training of fellows. We have a diverse group of individuals, many of whom are national experts in their areas of expertise. They serve as excellent mentors both during fellowship and beyond. They have very high expectations for you and not only mentor you, but challenge you to grow both clinically and academically. All of the faculty you work with are excellent clinicians. They know very well how to balance the art of medicine with the science of medicine. They respect your career goals and aspirations and will support them. I'm very proud and greatly appreciate the overall environment and culture of VCU. This is a very supportive and comfortable place to train and practice. Our fellows and staff are happy. They enjoy a balanced lifestyle, both inside and outside of the hospital. Richmond actually turns out to be an absolute underappreciated gem of a place to live. Quality of life here is high. Cost of living is low. There's a diverse range of things that you can do based on your interests around Richmond or near Richmond. I've been living here for 18 years, six of those years as program director. And at no point has coming to the hospital ever been feeling like work. It's just a fun place to be. As you can tell, and I speak on behalf of the faculty, we are all very proud of our fellows. They work closely with us daily. They become our lifelong friends and colleagues. It's a wonderful place to create a foundation for the rest of your career. We look forward to seeing you during this unique recruitment season, and I wish you the best of luck in all of your future endeavors. Thank you. Wow. What an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the CardioNerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all of the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. 
we thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Vivian Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karin Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S do and split. Totally. And guys, speaking of the life-threatening causes of syncope, would it be an awkward time if I go take a bathroom break? I've had a ton of coffee today. <laughs> go for it, man. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. This is going great, by the way. This is. Hey, awesome. Colin, whenever you edit this, you might want to consider that as a blooper. I'm not sure. You can touch base with the Amit later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man.